Well, this is our last, um, this is the last sermon in the series that we're in on um, the character of God from the Psalms. And our theme this morning is the glory of God. Next uh, Sunday, um, we'll have a couple baptisms, Hope Hoffman, and then also Pat and Chris Cameron. So that'll be exciting. This, uh, for today though, our scripture, our Psalm is Psalm 96. You can find that on page 10 of your worship folder. So hear God's word to us this morning from Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The word of the Lord. Lord, you are glorified. You are blessed. Lord, we do pray that as we reflect on this psalm and on the theme of your glory, that you show us your glory. Show us your glory in our lives and in this earth, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you grew up going to church, worship is most likely something that is instinctual in your life. If someone were to ask you, um, so why do you worship? Why do you worship God? Not whether God exists, but why do you worship? You'd probably be like, huh? Like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Worship is so basic and natural that you might never have thought to ask the question or try to answer the question, why do I do this? Why do I worship God? But this is not the case for everyone. I recall a conversation with uh, a neighbor, a secular non-Christian neighbor. Um, He found it very strange and odd um, that people gather together to sing songs of praise and adoration for God that they they can't see. Why do you do that? (laughs) What's the point of that? And here he wasn't actually, um, it wasn't so much that he was objecting to the existence of God, but why does God ask that of you? Why Why does God ask you? Why does God need that? Why does he need your worship? Again, he wasn't trying to be dismissive. He just didn't really have a category for worship. 
It was foreign to his imagination and his own experience. He, at least according to traditional religious ways of thinking about it, he just didn't worship. He didn't worship anything. And so he found it a strange thing. So what's the point? What's the point of worship? I think for many people, ourselves included, who are, who are shaped and swim in, in a secular age, as I often talk about our, our culture, the idea of worship just seems strange and odd. Uh, the, the theologian, the Greek Orthodox theologian, Alexander Schmemann, has one of the, the best definitions, I think, of, of secularism or the secular. He says that, that the secular is the negation of man as a worshiping being. The negation of man as a worshiping being. In other words, the, the reality of the secular is, 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 is the canceling out, if you will, of worship as something that is central to understanding our humanity. We often think of secularism or the secular is that which is antagonistic explicitly against God's existence or Christian things, and there's an aspect of that I think that's true. But I think the deeper, more subtle influence of living in a secular age is that God is just not really relevant to life, right? I mean, um, belief in God is an option. You can believe in God if you want to. You don't have to. But we don't need God to explain the world to us any longer. We don't need God to explain uh, you know, medicine and science. We don't need God to explain ourselves. And so more and more, life in a secular age is one in which the reality of God is squeezed out more and more to the margins of life. It's good for those who choose it, who want to embrace it, but it's not necessary. Not necessary for understanding myself, not necessary for understanding the world. That's what Shmemen means by the negation of man as a worshiping being. And so when you think about this idea of worship, I go to church and I sing songs and I worship. Why? Why do you do that? See, my, my neighbor's question makes a lot more sense um, against this backdrop. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? Why are you here to worship? The psalmist gives us an answer that can be captured in one word. Glory. Glory. God is glorious. He has all the glory. And as the one with all the glory, He deserves all the praise. All the worship. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. And here, if you read this psalm, the psalmist, he's piling up all these verbs of command related to glory. Sing, declare, worship, offer, ascribe, rejoice, praise. These are the logical, natural, instinctual responses of the creature as a human being that is in the presence before the glory of God. Why do we worship? Glory. We worship because God is glorious. 
But this begs a question. What is glory? What is glory? In what sense is glory an attribute of God? So we've been in this series through the summer looking at the attributes of God, like mercy and justice and wrath, on my presence and eternity. And if you remember, uh, an attribute is a description of God's character and nature. There are, uh, I talked about two different kinds of attributes, uh, communicable attributes, in other words, ones that we can share in and participate in, like love and righteousness and justice. And then there's those that cannot be communicated. Those like eternity, uh, omniscience, immutability, uh, almightiness, right? Those are things that mark God off as God from creation and creatures. But where does, or what does uh, glory as an attribute uh, fit into, into this understanding? Glory is hard to categorize. Um, sometimes God's glory is something that God seems to want to share with his creatures. At other times, God is jealously protective of his glory. And in some cases, coming close to his glory and touching it results in death. It's not a traditional attribute in, in, in the way we, we think about it. But glory is something more that we say about God as he becomes known to us. We say that God is glorious. What we're saying has to do with his imminence as it becomes known and recognized to us. By imminence, it's that word for greatness, right? So again, the psalmist says, for great is the Lord. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the gods. God's glory is his greatness, his majesty, his superiority, his perfection, his awesomeness, that becomes visible and encounterable, in a sense, in the world. It is often used glory in the sense of fame or recognition. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. According to the Psalms and the prophets, the greatness, the awesomeness, the majesty of God are pervasive through the entire cosmos that can be known and seen. Glory is often depicted as well in terms of light or as a cloud within the tabernacle or the temple or on a mountaintop, where you have the glory is almost like a thing, a kind of visible presence of God, where it comes and where it goes. Glory is not simply one character quality in God, such as love or justice, but glory in a sense is all God's attributes, all that God is together manifesting and becoming known in our presence. Glory is a totality of God's character revealed to us. Um, here's where I want to introduce you to a, one more word maybe you're not familiar with when it comes to the way theologians talk about God. The attributes of God are nothing less than what we might call the perfections of God. The perfections of God. God is a perfect being. 
God is perfection. God, there is, God is self-sufficient. He is lacking in nothing. He, in, he's not just lacking in nothing. He is the fullness of being, overflowing life, plenitude of being. He is perfect. Uh, you know, attributes are things that get applied to both humans and God. And it's proper to say that God has attributes. But at, we, when, it, when we talk about, say, this person is loving or righteous, and we say that of God, it's a different kind of thing. Because to say that one, a person is loving and righteous, that's a character quality of them, but it's not identical with them. By which I mean is, is that there's always a love and a righteousness that is, and a standard that is outside of them. But when we say that God is love, loving, that God is righteous, we're saying God is love, God is righteousness, he is the perfection of it. It is actually identical with his very nature and being. There is no standard of love. There is no standard of justice, which is outside of God, that God has to meet and look to. God in his very being is righteousness, is justice, is love. It is perfection. This is what we mean by the perfections of God. So how does any of this have to do with God's glory? The glory of God is the manifestation of all the divine perfections together. Imagine perfect love, perfect righteousness, perfect wisdom and power in eternity and life, all at once in one place and one being confronting you. And this is why glory in the Bible is always an overwhelming reality. Moses asked for God to see God's glory, and what does God say? No man can see my glory and live. It is too much for you to handle. You cannot handle my glory. Glory is being in the presence of perfection whose greatness and awesomeness is so beyond our imagination that it blows, literally blows our senses. (laughs) It eviscerates us if we're not careful. Glory in the Bible is an experiential category. It's not an abstract category. It is associated with images like light, clouds, weight, fame. It becomes visible, it becomes felt, it overcomes us. It evokes terror and fear, but also awe and fascination. An encounter with the glory of God is not an encounter with an idea or a philosophy but to be confronted with the awesomeness of God's person in the world. And when this happens, when this happens, the only instinctual response is to fall down, right? And worship and to bow before a reality that is far exceeds our imagination. So the question then is, (laughs) where, where is the glory of God today? Where is the glory of God in our world? Again, to the modern imagination, the very existence of God is questionable. To assert that God is glorious (laughs) is beyond questionable. We don't see this God. If you remember the, the title of the late atheist Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great. God is not great. That's the title of his book. 
How do we worship a God when it seems that the glory has departed? That is the sense I think we have of living in our time, that glory has departed. The book of Ezekiel, one of the prophets, records a story from the history of Israel when they were in exile in Babylon. And Ezekiel has a vision, a vision of the temple in which the glory of God leaves the temple in Jerusalem. And that glory in the temple is depicted as four living creatures, which he had a vision of in the very beginning of the book. And the four living creatures, they withdraw from the threshold of the temple and they ascend up on the cherubim, up above the temple, and they go away. And the departure of God's glory in the book of Ezekiel is a sign and a symbol of God's judgment on Israel for its idolatry and its wickedness. And the reason they are in exile is because of their idolatry. But that's not where the story ends in the book on glory. Really, the whole book of Ezekiel is a reflection on what does it mean for the people of Israel to reorient themselves to the glory of God. No longer, though, do they have a temple in the promised land in Jerusalem in which to look at the glory of God. Now they have to find the glory of God in the land of exile in pagan Babylon. Now, the, the historical circumstances between Ezekiel and our own time are very different, but I think there's a lot of similarities. Christian spirituality in our age is kind of like learning to experience glory in exile without a promised land, without a glorious temple and king, with all, all the, the pomp and circumstances of a kingdom. So how do we do that? How do we orient ourselves to God's glory in our own time and in our own lives? And I want to, in, in, in the last half here, I want us to reflect a little bit more on Psalm 96. And practically, what does it mean for us to engage God's glory? What does it mean for us to orient ourselves to God's glory in our life? And there's, there's three, I'll call them, orientations we need. The first orientation is this. The glory of God is, needs to be the end of your life. The glory of God is the end of our life. This is the overriding theme of this psalm. It's the overriding theme of all the Psalter, of really the entire Bible. The glory of God is the end of our life. And by end, I mean the purpose the goal, the direction, the destination point, but the end as well, right? When my life comes to an end, I will see him face to face. Um, the Christian spiritual tradition developed a, a category to talk about this. It was called the beatific vision. The beatific vision. And the beatific vision means it was really... It, spoke to this end. It was the consummation of my life, which ends with a full beholding of God face to face, with his glory full. First uh, John 3, which was our assurance of pardon. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. 
But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In other words, we will be glorious as he is glorious, and we see him face to face. This is what is meant by the beatific vision. It is to see God face to face, which means that we ourselves are completely transformed and glorified. I think that this is beautifully captured in the very first question and answer of the Heidelberg, or I'm sorry, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the chief end of human beings? The chief end of every human being, man, woman, child, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This, there's nothing more ultimate than this. It's helpful, I think, to step back then and ask this question, what has become the ultimate end or ends in our own age? And um, I like to put it in the form of a catechism. You might consider this the um, first question and answer of (laughs) the catechism of a secular age. What is the chief end of a human person? The chief end of a human person is to find personal happiness and enjoy it in freedom. That is the catechism, the first question and answer of the catechism of a secular age. It is to find personal happiness and enjoy it in freedom. The end of life, we are taught from birth, everything around us, the whole Uh, advertising industrial complex, what we're taught as we live and move in our culture is that our end as human beings is our own happiness. And that all the universe and all the cosmos and all things should work together towards my happiness. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great American theologian, wrote uh, a very dense, difficult treatise Uh, in 1765 called The End for Which God Created the World. I kind of ripped my sermon title off from that. And in that essay, Edwards takes up this question about ends. And he asks this question, why did God create the world? And even, you know, 300, almost 300 years ago, um, there was still a uh, kind of more and more theologians and people were thinking, well, God created the world for the sake of human happiness. And so um, Edwards takes up this question in depth, and he argues to the contrary that the world and creation does not exist for the sake of human happiness. The world exists for the sake of God's glory. It's God's glory that is the end, the ultimate purpose, the driving point, that all things go towards his glory. Now, Edwards doesn't deny that human happiness is... um, central to our lives, our desires, our quest, nor, nor did the rest of the Christian tradition. But the key difference that Edwards draws, and really the tradition, is that human happiness is actually ordered to the glory of God. That deep down our deepest end, our final end, can't be our own happiness. In fact, happiness is a sign of our desire for God. Deep down, a desire for happiness is a desire for God. Happiness can't be our final end. It has to be understood as that which leads us to God. 
Our final end is God and God alone and God's glory, and we will never experience the fullness of happiness until we experience it with God as our ultimate end. God is the highest end of our life. Now, I think this makes sense to us, but I think it's more difficult for us to actually to live out. And I, I suppose things weren't all that different in Edward's age as well, but I think very often happiness has a way of slipping in and becoming really the functional ends of our life where we view our relationship with God, our following of Jesus, our participation in the life of the church as a means to our happiness, as, as that which makes us happy. And so when we find ourselves in relating to God um, very unhappy, we question God's existence and reality altogether. This is not working. <laughs> This is not working. If you want to understand a lot of the deconversion, deconstruction stories, it's built upon the assumption that ultimately um, life with God should make me happy. It should always lead to my flourishing as I understand it. And when it doesn't, when it challenges us, when we suffer, we tend to question the whole thing. When Moses prays to the Lord, show me your glory, he's praying within the context of extreme suffering and difficulty. And he doesn't say, God, take away these nasty people or these difficult people in my life or whatever it is. He says, God, if you can just show me your glory, if I can just see you, I know that all the rest of this, will have the, I'll have the proper perspective on it. Friends, what is the highest goal in your life? What is your ultimate end? Where are your passions, your energies, your ambitions directed? Is it finding happiness in a career, in a family, in hobbies, in accomplishments? Or is it towards seeing the glory of God? Now, this is a very unfair question to ask. It's one of those nasty questions that preachers ask <laughs> to make you feel bad. I think that answering these questions are very, very hard, honestly. And I don't think we can ever fully discern what we've made the functional and actual ends and purposes of our life. Um, we often just don't have a sense of what's deep you're driving us. Until something is taken away from us, often we don't realize how we can easily turn it into an idol. But there is a question, I think, that can help us dig deeper into what are the functional ends and purposes of our life. And it brings me to the second point, our second orientation. And it's really this question, what is the weight of my life? What is the weight of my life? The glory of God is the weight of my life. That's how we need to think about the glory of God. The glory of God is the weight of my life. The psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Glory is that which has strength and brilliance and magnitude and splendor in your life. It's that which causes you to tremble. It's that which captures your heart and your imagination. 
It's that which has weight. And that Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And the imagery of that word literally is weight. It is weightiness. Glory is weight. It is that which presses down upon me, that which has gravity in my life. So if you want to find the functional uh, end of your life or glory of your life, you have to ask the question is, what is it that has weight in my life? What is it that has weight in my life? Again, I think one of the challenging things about living in our age is that traditional uh, religion, traditional religious doctrines and practices and religious traditions have become weightless. <laughs> They're weightless. Uh, again, it's optional. You know, here, you know, I'm spiritual, not religious, which means like I kind of take what, how, what sort of fits um, what I think works for me and my goals towards happiness. To, to, live in a, to live in a secular age is to live in a time in which, um, again, because all religion is optional, and you can mix and match, but that means that all religion then is weightless. I mean, you can pick and choose as you like. And so living spiritually in our time is like living in a zero-gravity chamber, right? Where we're sort of pushed, and we're bouncing off walls from here to there. But it's very hard for us to have a sense that there's this weightiness, there's this gravity to the existence and the reality of God. We live in a zero-gravity chamber. <laughs> but that doesn't mean, however, that there are not glories. There are not things with weightiness in our lives and in this world. There are all kinds of them. They are what you might consider uh, substitute glories. If we want to know what the functional glory in our life is, we need to ask some hard questions. We need, what are the things in your life that have gravity? What are the things that captivate your attention? What has magnitude? What gets you emotional? What makes you tremble? What gives you incredible pleasure? What do you dread and fear? These, whatever that is, that's glory. That's the glory of your life. And I think I, I speak for myself here, but I think it's true as a general statement about our culture. The biggest thing in there is going to be the self. <laughs> my pleasure or my pain. My pleasure becomes my glory, or my pain, or my suffering. I can't ever not stop thinking about it. It's just there. We live in a culture that is obsessed with the self, with its own glory. It commands and captivates our attention, and we can't stop thinking about ourselves. <clears throat> but these are, these are false glories. These are substitute glories. The real glory is from God. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. The splendor and majesty are before him. God's glory for the psalmist just simply cannot be compared to any other glory or any other God. It says all the gods of the nations or of the peoples 
literally in the Hebrew, are ungods. They're ungods. They're worthless idols. They're empty, vacuous. They have no real weight. They might, you might let them weigh you down, but they actually do not have the weight of real glory. Ex- experiencing the glory of God as the weight of our life is the difference between a mere belief that God exists and an actual experience of the glory of God. Where God has, a, there's a weightiness to God's reality in us. To glorify God is to worship him, it is to make him the weight of our life. Now, the question you might be asking is like, okay, how do I do that? How do I do that? And here I want to just sort of step back a little bit. The glory of God is not abstract. It is very concrete. It is not a generic religious feeling. It is not a a general luminosity uh, that, that just shows up. The glory of God is a concrete reality that only becomes fully known to us and fully real to us in the sight of God, the Holy Trinity. The glory of God is a triune reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fullness of his glory is revealed to us in, other words, in the saving actions of God, Father, Son, and Spirit towards us. And I think this is so important because glory is not something you achieve. Right? We've, remember what Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Glory is not something you can achieve or you can gain for yourself. And it's not a question of, you know, taking the commands of God more seriously or finding some some cool ancient Christian practices that have an aura of mystery and holiness about them. It's not about, you know, being more serious about following Jesus and suffering. The only way you experience God's glory more fully and the weight of God's glory is by understanding that it comes to us as a gift in the person of Jesus Christ. Making God the glory and the weight of your life comes when we embrace the gospel more fully in our lives. For in the gospel, the glory of God is fully revealed. It is fully revealed and given to us in the person of Christ. And so my final point is this, and I'm I'm wrap up here. The final orientation is this. Christ is the glory of my life. Christ is the glory of my life. As the writer of Hebrews says, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his power. If this psalm has anything to teach us about Jesus by way of anticipation, I think it is this, that the glory of God um, deepens in our life not by means of dread, but by means of attraction. The psalmist says splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The glory of God in the person of Jesus reveals fully the splendor and the majesty and the beauty of God. God is beautiful. That's part of what glory is about. It's just beautiful. And the beauty of God becomes most fully real and evident in the person of Jesus Christ. And the more that we gaze upon him and his works, 
like we would gaze upon a painting and study it and reflect upon it and lose ourselves in it, the more lovely he becomes, the more glory becomes the weight of our life. The more you embrace the gospel and see that you've been embraced by the gospel and by God in Christ, the more lovely it becomes, the more glory becomes the weight of our life. And really, this glory is this attraction, this force that pulls us in towards God and is nothing less than God's love for us. We see the full weight of God's glory in his self-giving and sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. The experience of glory is also the experience of joy. The glory of Christ is experienced increasingly in our life as joy. Joy is a proper response to the glory of God. As the Catechism says, right? Glorify God and enjoy Him. Enjoy Him. We don't, don't forget that. Don't miss that. That the glory of God is the human being's highest happiness, the human being's highest joy. The psalmist knows this. All the creation knows this. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. Why do they sing for joy? Because when God the real king shows up, in all his glory, all the fraudulent rulers, all the pseudo-glories that have tyrannized us and distorted reality are vanquished, when the Lord comes in person with judgment but with righteous love and redemption, he breaks the spell of those pseudo-glories and all their pseudo-weight in our life. And he liberates us as creation to enjoy and rejoice in the God who is glorious. The early church father, Irenaeus, sums up this well. He says the glory of God is man fully alive. And the life of man is a vision of God. The glory of God is man and woman fully alive. And the life of man and woman is the vision of God. To see God face to face, friends, to behold his glory is what it means to be a human being that is fully alive. Beloved, we are God's children. Now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared, but we shall know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray for a vision of your glory, an imagination of ourselves fully alive in you. Help us to discern the, the pseudo-glories that weigh us down in our lives and set us free by your true glory that we might see you clearly and take comfort in you. And as we sang about the cleft in the rock, that you might put us in a cleft that uh, as your glory passes, you might keep us safe. As we come to this table, may we see your glory again and your love. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.